And uh, welcome to another edition of Swing Thoughts, episodes about the mental performance side of golf, and uh, just goofing around with a couple of golf geeks. My name's uh, Humble Howard Glassman, along with Tim O'Connor, one of the nicest people you'll ever have the pleasure of knowing, mental performance coach for the Glen Abbey Academy, and myself, of course, golf spiritual leader, Mr. O'Connor. How are you, sir? Well, I'm great. And uh, let me begin by uh, saying, of course, this program brought to you by Club Link. Never been a better time to join. And Taylor Made Golf, the number one driver in golf. Um, hey, can we do that cool thing they do with the uh, tour players? I'm, uh, I'm, I think I'm two two one. What are you? Oh, oh, I don't. What are you talking about? Sorry, <laughs> dude. Completely. You're my best golf buddy in terms of this. Like, you know, on the commercials now for TaylorMade, they they talk oh, about yeah. the numbers yeah. that Jason Day are hitting. Like they, you know, that they have an M2 driver, an M1 three wood, an M2 hybrid. You know what? I've seen that ad just once. Um, so two two one is like what you're hitting? What your your seven iron two hundred twenty? No, 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 buddy. I just explained it. It's um. So if you have a tail, so the, how they, they do it is like I have a t- I have a uh, an M two driver, so that's two. I have an M two three wood, and an M one hybrid, so I'm two two one. Okay, I'm one two two. There you go. That's what's happening here on Swing Thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> so, you throw numbers at me, and I, I just like I think I'm I'm just dyslexic. I'm no. Just like, you know what it is? I had this discussion with Fred on the Humble and Fred show, uh, which we just finished doing on SiriusXM about an hour ago. And I said, you know, I realize a lot of things that are happening to me, you know, like yesterday's heat was just too much for me. And I said, it's because I'm uh, I'm elderly now. I said, I'm an elderly guy. Oh, oh wait a second. Wait a second. So uh, it, it, now you have to introduce things to, to Tim slower because <laughs> an older guy now. Because Tim... Because Tim hit the birthday of sixty last time. Is this what we're? Is this what's coming to? Really? Well, I'm fifty-seven. You're sixty. My other radio partner has just turned sixty-one. I don't know, man. If that's not elderly, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're it's not elderly. Uh, oh my god, it is. Hey, I'm um, concerned with prunes and stuff. So then, speaking of uh, a little bit older, I, I am meeting your mother. Good lord, how she's amazing. How old is your mom? She's eighty-five. You know, um, at your uh, book signing, your book launch the other night at Blue Springs, what a great evening. And I wanted to begin by saying the uh, the feeling of greatness, the second edition that Tim has been working on. We talked about it last time. But what a great gathering. It was Tim's family. I got to meet your mom. Todd Graves was there. A lot of uh, Mo Norman friends and, and uh, proponents or whatever. Your buddy David. It was really a great night. And I'm so glad I, I got to go. I wish I could have stayed longer, but it was a uh, it was a pretty cool thing. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, really happy with it. There's about you know fifty to sixty people there. That was great. But I was really, really pleased that um, a lot of Mo's buddies were there. Herb Holscheider, who was like the the longtime pro at Western uh, Golf Club in Toronto, uh, Ken Vardy from uh, Barry Country Club, Mike Martz who uh, was the pro at Rockway where Mo grew up. Um, you know, a lot of his buddies were there. Shed, of course, Mark Evershed, friend of show. 
but also Mo's family. Um, there, his uh, four of his uh, nieces were there with uh, with their husbands and kids, and I think there was about twenty to twenty five of them there. So that was very very cool. Um, I wish I had more time, too, to spend with Todd Graves. You know, you and Todd have known each other a long time. The Single Plane Swing, another one of the O'Connor books. Uh, Todd's coming back to Toronto. He mentioned that some pretty heavy hitters are producing a documentary about the life of Mo Norman. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, So Barry Morrow, who wrote the uh, screenplay for um, The Rain Man, uh, you know, a lot of people think that they look at Mo. And they think, wow, he's like Raymond in The Rain Man. And, uh, yeah, Barry Morrow's going to, he's, I don't know what his, I guess he's directing the documentary. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's pretty darn cool. And so uh, I'm actually organizing uh, interviews with people, uh, Mo's buddies, for September. And we're going to do a, a shoot and... So uh, that's that's pretty exciting. Well, what I was hoping to do, and, and, you know, you're more of the producer of this show in terms of reaching out to people. If you could make it so that we get Todd and you and I in our studio together, because that should be an entire hour or more. Maybe it's the kind of thing we could probably do it in two parts. But, you know, not only does Graves have a lot of experience and and very intimate technical knowledge, as he was explaining the other night to me. It's funny because you mentioned your wife, Sandy, sort of looked over and, and Graves and I are look, doing like pantomime golf swings. Yeah, as golfers do. As super geeks. Like he, he is a super geek like you and me. So he was explaining some of the, the information and technical data that he's gathered on just the why Mo's swing works and how it might work for other people. And I think that I'd like to have a discussion with him because... You know, it's it's one of those things that fascinates a lot of golfers. What is the most efficient way to move a golf club through the ball to make it go places? And he's got such a, a depth of knowledge, it would be certainly well worth our while to take some time. Yeah, that's cool. That's a great thought. So, yeah, I'll, um, I'll work that into the shoot schedule. <laughs> um, I don't know where to start. You know, on the show today, I, I want to talk a little bit about the experience I had you know, you as a writer, we were sort of corresponding when I was in Scotland, and you were rem- reminding me or re- recalling a, your first time going to cover the Masters. And, you know, to be honest, Tim and I have enjoyed a lot of access. I know I have as a sort of radio and TV guy in Toronto, a lot of access to things that are pretty, we're pretty lucky. You know, you got to go to cover these golf tournaments, and not everyone gets to sort of go inside the ropes in quotation you know, your first tournament, you know, where you go and see what these guys are like up close, it's pretty remarkable. Oh, absolutely. It, it really is. Um, I felt like, so my first, uh, so I'd gone to some Canadian Opens, but my first major championship was the Masters in 1989. And it was just, I, I felt like a kid just running around. I was just super excited. Like on Sunday morning, I ate breakfast in the clubhouse at a table. At, I'm at one end and Bernard Langer's at the other end. And it's kind of like, pinch me. Holy crap, this is just so neat. Um, I don't know, did you have a similar type of feeling? Well, um, the whole Scottish experience for me, the last time I was there was uh, 22 years ago, the summer before my daughter was born, my first kid. And my dad and I, you know, we played St. Andrews and we played Carnoustie, we played Presswick. 
It was different this time because, you know, I'm older. My father's passed away. I have a 22-year-old daughter. Life is just different, you know? And yeah, yeah. I think I went into it like like the difference between a 57-year-old and a 34-year-old. I appreciated it more. Yeah. I, I Every morsel of it, I had a, a, a more mature reaction to it all. But like you said... My first day, I was at the Dundonald, is the name of the golf course on the west coast of Scotland, just about 15 minutes from Presswick, just up the, a little bit north. And um, I didn't know where to look, Timmy. I, I, was, I was buzzing around. Um, I think we mentioned on the, the, one of the shows, I, I got to go there because Keith Pelly, who is now the commissioner of the PGA Tour Europe, or as they call him, I think he's the chief executive, whatever their name for him. Is he inviting me? He said, yeah, you know, come and hang out at the tournament. So I had media credentials, which I've had before, but I had this other band around my neck that basically said I could go anywhere I wanted. So I was on the range. The first day I was on the range, like a 10-year-old for six hours. Exactly. You know, I just, I mean, you know, and, and, you know, it had the kind of thing where, you know, there are people, you can watch the players on the range, but I was walking up and down behind people, talking to the track man guy, and I walked up to Kuchar, I asked him a question. Like, it was ridiculous. Um, I can tell you a couple things as a golfer, you know, and you know me, I, I think I work a lot in my game. Oh, yeah. But but not like these guys. Like what I appreciated right away is when the, when golf is your job and your job is to get ready for a tournament. You know, I got there Tuesday, the day that most of the main guys got there, and there was Stenson Kucher, um, you know, any number of guys, and they all spent for, forget about just you know hitting a few chips and it was hours and hours. I'll give you an example. I didn't realize this. I, I got to know the TrackMan guy. He's a TrackMan rep for Europe. And I said, can, you ask, can I ask you a question? That's how I began a lot of conversations. Excuse me. My name's Howard Glassman from Toronto. I say Toronto because I don't want people to think I was an American. Um, and I said, do you mind if I ask a question? He said, sure, go ahead. I said, why are they, why are they doing TrackMan numbers on their wedges? And, Tim, here's what I learned. These guys are so you know, committed to excellence that every tour stop, because some, you know, you think about it, if you're, if you're playing a tournament in Denver and you're playing one in Toronto, you know, yardages are different. That's right. But check this out. He told me that most of these guys will do their numbers every day because they're different. So I played, I'll I'll, I'll tell a little bit more of this story, but I played the pro-am with former number, like top 10 player in the world, David Howell. And by the way, coming up on this episode of Swing Thoughts, I will tell you a golf story that I'll be telling for the rest of my life, and uh, so will you, that Howell told me. So Howell's on the back of his lob wedge, his gap wedge, whatever that is for him. On the back, I was looking in his bag, and he's got, he's taken a magic marker, and he's wrote down, or written down 65, 72, 83, and 90. And I said, you know, what is this? And his caddy said, that's his track man numbers for this wedge on this day. On this. On, so this, these, that's how precise these guys are. So you mean like uh, on Thursday, their number for a wedge is one thing. And then the next day, because they had chili for dinner and a glass of Merlot, it's different. Maybe. Day? I mean, he, one, the, the track man guy told me that the last thing Dustin Johnson does before going to the tee, is he track mans his wedges. 
Wow. And you think about it, that's why, you know, we often talk, and, and you know, you know, you've mentioned this, we all, we all understand that tour players are so much better than even elite amateurs from 125 yards in. But it's par- that's part of the reason because, you know, and I started thinking about myself as a, you know, an amateur that wants to play, you know, tournament golf. I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of have a, a murky idea how far I hit my gap wedge. But I don't know how far my three-quarter gap wedge is. In fact, I don't even know, like, what if, what if, what if I grip down an inch and take a half swing? How far does that go? And yeah, well, exactly. That's yeah. The the precision is, and there are amateurs who who work on on that stuff. But generally, that's the uh, the province of of tour players is to do. Because one thing, they, as you mentioned, it's their job. So they they put in, they have the time, and they put in the time. But uh, what you just reminded me of is, I remember um, Johnny Miller saying, when he was at his zenith of his career you know he could tell the difference between like uh you know go back obviously about three decades you know that he could hit a seven iron you know whether he would hit it a 155 seven iron versus a 157 seven iron and my sense is is that now they all have that ability Mm -hmm. well i mean and i would offer listen you're you coach a lot of good players uh, a couple of the guys you coach are elite players. You know, I know a few of them. And I, and I, I had a conversation with one of them last night. I, I played around with him. And I was telling him about that. I said, you know, I, I'm on the range enough. And I am, you know, I want to I improve enough that I'm going to at least, I'm, I, 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 listen, I don't, I don't have four different versions of my gap wedge. But other, the other day I spent a good hour hitting gap and and lob wedge a couple of distances. I just wanted to know my full swing, sort of three, my sort of three quarter swing, which is what I I, I, just, I don't I hardly ever take a full swing with those wedges. I just wanted right. to know what three quarter and half was, and then what happens if I grip down an inch? Because I'm playing a big tournament next week, and I thought, you know, why not know that? So those were the things that you know, observing these guys in their workplace was uh, sort of an eye opener. The other thing I noticed, too, is, you know, Matt Kuchar, I sort of got there around the time that he did, and he warmed up, hit some balls, got his own track, man, by the way. You could tell everybody on that range that could afford it. The only guys that didn't have a track, man, were the guys that just came, you know, came off the challenge tour or were right. young kids. You know, everybody else, you know, um, Poulter, uh, Stenson, Kuchar, Stuart Sink, you know, I still I sat and watched Stuart Sink hit balls. I mean, he's you know he's pretty old by their standards, but it's just ridiculous that the quality, the consistent quality of contact. Oh yeah, it is nutty how good they all hit it. And in a way, it was kind of uh, like you're a, a good guitar player, and and if you go and see like I know one of your one of your idols was Stevie Ray Vaughan. And sometimes you fancy yourself a pretty decent player when you're at home or you're playing with your buddies. And then you go see somebody that's like world class at it. And I don't know, part of it is inspiring and part of it's like, ugh, why do I bother? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You know what? I, you know, I also write. And, and uh, there's been times that I was like reading like John Updike. And I go like, why would I bother? Oh, my God. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is a very silly thing to do. But No, but and, and you're a very fine writer. I told you the, uh, after I left your book signing and you the, lovingly gave me a book and a, a lovely uh, inscription, I just went to bed last night, I, um, that night I should say, and I just started looking through the book and I, I told you the next day, I was like, Oh, yeah, I've read this. Because I'd forgotten that I, as I started to reread it, I went like, oh, yeah, I remember this. You know, again, yeah, I'm elderly like now. Mid- well, I didn't rewrite the um, the middle part. No, but I, I had this sensation of like, I didn't, I didn't think I had read the original, but of course I had. And you're a fine writer. I mean, you're very, very good. But I can imagine, you know, if you're a writer of, you know, you're an elite writer, I and mean, then you read Updike or you read, you know, whoever, and you kind of go, oh, well, that's good. That's amazing that you read that stuff. You go, oh my gosh! But you know, it's a foolish thing that we do to ourselves. Is that whole comparison, judgment, evaluation? It's just, it doesn't serve us. But it's it's kind of a natural thing that we do, anyways. But it, it's it, it's like um, it's interesting. I was having a chat with uh, David Robinson, a good friend of mine, who's a member of the Mankind Project, and he talked about. We were talking about. Um, the whole aspect of, of shame. And, and when most people think of shame, they think of, you know, that you did something bad or, you know, or whatever, something stupid happens and and you feel really super bad about it. But there's also what Dave calls healthy shame, and that's aspirational. It's like, oh, I see him or her doing this. I would love to do that. So it's aspirational. So it's... That's a great it's, distinction. I mean, I... I you know, after the experiences I had, and I'm going to give you a couple of cool examples, but I came home so energized about what I could apply to my own silly little, you know, amateur career. And, and, and you know, I, I'm not a huge ball beater. You know, I know I have that perception, but I'm a big practicer. The problem is the practicing with purpose that I saw and was reminded of how important you know, the one thing that I think a, a lot of golfers listening, and I know you and I have experienced it, I know I certainly have in my younger days, was the frustration of not being able to take my range swing to the golf course. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Carl Morris on our show. I, I asked him that question and, and or whatever the discussion was, and he said the reason is you go to the first tee and it's the first time that day that any shot has mattered. There's been any consequence to any swing you've made. Exactly. And so I sort of came back, sort of rededicating myself, as David said, aspirationally, you know, comparing myself as to how much of my practice has consequence. And I want to just say this. Even I played a tournament on Monday at our course just before your book signing. And I have a friend who is uh, an amazing golfer. He won the tournament. His, his name is Charles Fitzsimmons. He's, has he been on the show yet? Yeah. Did, did Charlie win as Glen Karen? Yeah. Really? Yeah. He's, you know, it was, it was kind of an off day for him. He was just two under for 27 holes. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know it was Charles. So Great. Charles won the I, – I actually played with the kids because I forgot to enter it. You know, I'm elderly now. Um <laughs> And I do want to let's carve out a minute or two for our our friend and you know your your buddy Mike our buddy Mike Bondy, who uh, tied in the senior division and then went to a three hole playoff and I'm going to tell you he had some big boy shots under pressure. Yeah, and that, that and it was interesting. So he came to the book signing, right? Yep. And he was telling me, and like good for him. And this isn't giving anything away, but uh, but he was he was shaking. 
he but he was able to still play really well and, and that says so much um you know for a lot of our average list, our average players our listeners who you know maybe shoot 90s and stuff like that there's this perception that a lot of like good players, professionals, elite amateurs, they got it all figured out. They're cool. They're blissful. Holy crap. They think the same whacked out things, and they shake just like everybody else when they're nervous and things mean things. Well, I, I told you that the first, my first shot at the Mid-Am this summer, I was trembling, and I just said to myself, you've hit a shot being nervous before. And I'm, and I'm going to tell you, it takes me, I don't know about other guys at my level, but it takes me a good couple of holes before I'm like calm down enough to to just get into the round and all I hope for those first couple of holes is I haven't done too much damage by that point. Exactly. But Bondi, I'll just say this about Mike and he was very disappointed at not qualifying for the Senior Am next week and I was so happy for him because the guy that beat him is ranked in the top 10 senior amateurs in the province of Ontario and that's pretty big stuff. Wow, yeah. And wow. and I, I got to tell you, Mikey hit some shots. They were just, like I say, big boy shots, up and down for birdie on the first hole to tie. Killed his drive in the second hole. The only reason that the other guy beat him on the third hole, and Mike will tell you this, he just he just picked the wrong club. He, his second shot to this par five, he you know, could have easily, you know, he hit three wood, and he hit it in the Magumbe, which is what the uh, Scottish call the, the high hay. <laughs> That's what they said. I, I hit a shot with these two. I got to tell you, these two old guys I played with at this local course in Scotland. I hit one in the hay. They go, "Oh, you're in the Magumbe." I'm like, I, "I'm never going to not call it that." But Mike and I talked about it after, and he said, "You know, I should have just hit my. I could have hit four. And I said, Mike, you got to force the other guy to make birdie to beat you. And what yeah. you did with him by hitting it in the hay is that you kind of gave him a a bit of a free pass because Mike's third shot, unpredictably uh, from that lie, goes over the green chips on and you know the other guy made basically beat him with a par but yeah, you, you yeah. got to give full credit because whatever you've worked with this guy for a year and you can see he he has become a better tournament player yeah that's so cool that's so cool and and what i like what i really like about so so mike uh was a key organizer of that tournament you know he had skin in the game in that that thing in terms of you know what uh, he was working with glenn karen and trying help them get their numbers up and all that stuff. So good for him. That's incredible. So back to Charlie. Charlie is a guy, he's a buddy of mine. I, I mentioned he was my better ball partner. I'm going to be staying with him uh, out west for the Canadian Mid-Am that you know I barely qualified for, and he came in second. But we're friends, and he's a mental guy, and he works with a lot of elite golfers, and he's part of the you know golf team at Western University. Not Western, I'm sorry. Um, is it London? Is it? Yeah, it's Western. Yeah, Western, yeah, okay. Western. And he also... Uh, He's also a consultant to the, the London Knights uh, Ontario Hockey League team. And, you know, he and I are, you know, it's like you and me. We talk golf all the time. And after everyone left that night, I had to kill some time because I was going to my dear friend's book signing. And uh, Charlie and I just sat down and talked about Scotland. And then basically I said, I, I don't have an, I don't per practice enough with purpose. And we went out to the chipping area. And for a half an hour, he just showed me little games to play that made me feel like I was... I needed to get up and down for a reason. And I got to yeah. tell you, the first couple chips I hit, I sculled over the green. It, it, because you're, as he said, your brain can't separate what's real from what's, you know, made up. So put yourself, say to yourself, I've got to get this up and down 
uh, for this reason, or if I don't get three up and down, I can't go home. One of the guys I met in Scotland, his name is Jonathan Hallett, and he runs a performance, elite performance academy in Swiss, out of Switzerland, but he works with tour players all over the world. And one of the things that he said that he did with his you know, young tour players is they had this thing where it was a game they did where you needed to get up and down or you couldn't have lunch. Yet it was much more difficult than that, but it was basically, you know, it was you had to get five difficult shots up and down or you don't eat. And he said there were lots of days these guys basically only had time to grab a sandwich because it took them the full hour to do it. And you'll get, and I, what I've seen is that you get more out of that even though you're not hitting ball at, you know, you're not hitting a lot. There's block practice for sure, but there's the kind of practice for people that want to improve their golfing game and not just guys like me and Bondi. But, you know, if you put yourself in some stressful situations before you hit the first tee, you're already in the mode of playing the game. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I love that. And, um, yeah, because the hardest, you know, it's even like Mo would say, like the, the longest walk is from the range to the first tee and it's because of just as you mentioned earlier when you hit your first shot on the on the tee it's often as you say the first shot with with that has a consequence to it and if we're not kind of ready if we're not already kind of moved into that headspace or that ability to deal with stress we're we're going to really struggle and uh todd graves has a great routine that he suggests uh, so get to the course an hour before. Yes, not everyone has an hour, but you, you get there and you just start. You just hit some balls and chips, and you don't even try and make anything. It's just roll, go to the range, work through your bag. It's about warm up. Then come back to the putting green and start putting from various distances. And you're putting like you do on the course. So you miss, you mark, you make, you putt out, and that way you start to build up that sense of okay, I'm playing. This has consequence. So and this, and then you go back and say to on the range and you play say the first three holes, you know on the range say driver eight iron hybrid whatever, and so when you get on that first tee you've already you're 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 ready to go you're you've already handled stress. Well, the way they the way they talk about it, this Jonathan guy and and some of the other people I've been interacting with is they try and make their practice actually harder than playing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I did this drill yesterday um, with Nick Trachilio. I don't even I'm sure that's how you pronounce his last name. He's the coach of the Humber uh, golf uh, team. Yeah. And I was telling him, I want to learn to practice with consequence. And he gave me this drill. It was five balls, three feet, four feet, five feet, six feet. I mean, you know, the, the longest one was a seven-footer. And you had to. here's how you had to do it. You had, to, you had to try and sink the three-footer. If you miss, you have to start again. You try and sink the four-footer. You miss, you have to start again. It took me 40 minutes. I'm not even kidding you. It took me more than a half an hour uh, to get to all the way around. And then if you get all the way around, then you keep going for your personal best. So it took me, okay, maybe the whole, the whole thing was 40 minutes. It took me, like, say, 30 minutes to get through five, and then I got all the way to eight until I missed again. But I'm going to tell you, Tim, I was getting... Not my heart rate up, but I was getting a little bit annoyed yeah. that I had, I had to keep coming back to the first, and it was one ball. But I got to tell you, when I got on the golf course yesterday and I had a five footer, I'd like, I'm like, I've already done this. It, yeah. This isn't the first five footer I've had to sink today. Yeah, so I, I pass that on as just something if you want to. Oh no, that's great stuff, and uh, 
because I remember um, our old friend Carl Morris talking about the the, the greatest cricket player in history is uh, Dennis uh, Bradman. Oh yeah, his his numbers are off the charts, and so so Bradman always made his practice harder than the actual game of cricket. So I don't even know what a cricket ball is. I, I, I think it's kind of a hard thing. It's kind of like a lacrosse Indian rubber ball. I might be wrong, but, but it's a bigger ball. Anyways, Bradman practices with his cricket bat, which is rounded with a golf ball. So that golf ball is coming back way quicker at him. So he's hitting it against a wall it's coming back to him way quicker than whatever cricket ball he's, he's using. So the, the piece is he's making his practice harder than the actual game. As the story goes, he practiced against a wall for a while, and when that got too easy, he found an uneven wall. So now it was coming yeah. back. He couldn't predict a direction. If you check this guy out in the Hall of Fame of cricket, his highest score is something like 922. The next guy's is like in the early 600s, whatever that means to cricket. Wow, I can't believe you and I are talking about cricket. <laughs> well, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about whether you're a guy that shoots in the 90s or 80s or you just want to do better in your club championship. You know, we all love the game, and at times it's really frustrated us. And I think, you know, one of the things we've been talking about since you, you know, I started having lunch together a couple of years ago is, you know, not only our personal frustration of not making the progress we think we, you know, deserve to, which is also a problem, but, you know, but we, 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 we like a lot of guys are, you know, we've loved this game. We've been playing it our whole lives, and at times we get stuck. Listen, I played last night with uh, a plus one and a plus two, and when the round was over, the guy who is the plus one, who hits it, Timmy, he hits it like a tour player. You know, he's like 50, 60 by me all the time and was wow. having some frustration with his wedge game. Like his on one par four, you know, he hit a driver 45 yards from the green. I had 150 in and he I make four. He makes four. And he said to me after he's like, you know, bemoaning how he thinks he should be better. And I thought to myself, isn't that interesting? Here's a guy who most golfers, myself included, would love to play like. But just like everyone else, he thinks he should be a plus three. The point being, and at one point I heard him say something like, you know, I practice this much and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, everyone's the same. They think golf owes them something. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And and once you catch yourself, if you can catch yourself in that mindset and go, okay, this, the game doesn't owe me anything. It is, doesn't need to be fair, whatever. It just is what it is. And as soon as we start sort of accepting reality, rather than this sort of subjective bias, it should be this. I, I practice all the time, and therefore I should be able to get up and down more often. Once we, when, it's just, it comes back again to awareness. When you catch yourself doing that stuff, you can just kind of let go of it, and you can just have so much more fun and be way more resilient. Well, resilience is something I want to touch on a little bit. I, I mentioned as we were getting ready to do the show, I said, you know, I really sort of noticed since last summer's, you know, dark days of golf hell, I've really noticed, I really have, I really catch myself not getting angry. I catch myself sort of just getting on with it. You know, I practiced my short game two days ago 
I don't know. I'm embarrassed to say. I probably practiced for a good couple hours of just hitting wedges, hitting chips, hitting putts. And yesterday during men's night, you know, I had kind of a tricky little chip on a very difficult hole. I was next to the green in two. It's like 460-yard par four. So I'm feeling pretty good about where I am. And I was going to land it. It was one of those ones where I wanted to land it in the rough and let it roll out. It was a short side type of pin situation. And so I hit it, and it just got caught in the rough and stopped. And now I've got some hideous lie where it's sitting at the bottom of a, you know, a nest, and I chunk that. I chunk it onto the fringe. Now, I, old Howard would have been, oh, great. I spent all that time <laughs> practicing my sword game, and now look at what's happened to me. And I, I'm being 100% honest. All I thought was, I got a 15-footer. I thought, I could probably make this. And when I did make it, yeah. um, my buddy Paul said, who are you? <laughs> and just the way he reacted, it was a compliment like, where's old Howard? Why, why yeah. haven't you made seven? Yeah, who are you and what did you do with Howard? Yeah, who are you and where's that old crazy Jewish guy? Because I'll tell you, I had some, that five felt like I'd made birdie. Oh, 100%. And, but, oh, that's, that's coming back to your big boy golf thing. Well, that's the thing. And, 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 but, but I promise you, ago. even if I'd missed it and made double bogey, I still wasn't going to go, well, I practiced so much. I, I assessed what I had done wrong. I chose the wrong shot. I should have tried. Really, in that situation, I'll know next time. Really, you know, don't get too cute. You know, take your 10-footer past the hole. But I just felt like I felt like I had that shot. Now, it didn't go my way, but it didn't affect me. Yeah. And, and I said to you before the show started today, I said, I just feel like, you know, I go to the golf course right now, and I feel energized when I'm done, whereas I used to go to the golf course and feel drained of psychic energy. Yeah. I feel well, like there I, was a weight on me. I totally get it, but I also think that you... Uh, maybe even subconsciously, you, you you play golf for a different reason. I don't think you go out to shoot. You know, the the, the number. It's not always. Is this the day? Is this the day I shoot the number? Yeah, and we'd be all be foolish to say the numbers doesn't don't matter. But I just think you're in a different place of of, of what really resonates for you. You know, emotionally, really. You know. I, I would uh, expand on that because I, I would agree. I, I don't. I I'm no longer concerned if the number. And I played with two guys yesterday, and I'm I'm going to come out and tell you I wanted to beat them because they're the two guys I have to beat to win the club championship this year. But mostly, I wanted to show them that I'm I've got some resilience. I'm not going to beat myself. They can both beat me easily, and they did last night. You know, one shot seventy three, one shot seventy five, and I shot seventy six. But I had two double bogeys on two bad swings where I lost two golf balls. So I was four over on two holes and shot 76. Uh, so the message I feel like, yeah, you know, I didn't beat you today, but I'm not going to beat myself anymore. Yeah, and that's super important because um, so now you have that to draw from that, you know, I'm not going to beat myself. There's just, a, as you say, a little bit more of equanimity. And that is huge, particularly going into any competition. But also, you've also sent a message to your competitors, and 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 they actually now may cause them a little bit of more stress. Of, Holy crap! This this ain't the old Howard. So this guy, um, Jonathan Hallett, who I you know I, I don't even know if we're. I know I said I wanted to do a shorter show today because I'm dizzy, but 
Let me just say, I had this experience, so I get to play so with... Howlett, so, so who's Howlett again? Just Jonathan Howlett is David Howell's uh, mental coach and also is a swing coach. Kind of like, you know, it's interesting. I thought of you because I know that part of what your longer-term goals are is to help people with the physical aspect of the game as well, which you're well-qualified. So this guy is the first guy I've met that does both. And how, you so know... How is the... Uh, how kind of... Didn't he come out in like the, as a can't-miss kind of player in the like the 2000s or something? Well, you know, again, at one point in his career, he was ranked ninth on planet Earth. So he had a pretty, right. you know, pretty good run there. He won the Dunhill yeah, Cup, great. and he, he's won some tournaments. Told me yeah, stories I want of people to know who you were, uh, just the background of who you were talking about. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you, he's on two Ryder Cups. But the reason that Keith Pelly put me with him and not some young tour guy, and I, I'll be honest with you, when Pelly's secretary said, "Oh, by the way, you're playing with David Howell," I was kind of like, "I know who he is." But he's not kind of like the current roster of golfers, you know. But yeah. the reason he put me with him is he is a he's a really super guy. That from the the first moment we met to the 18th um, hole, we just had a great time. He couldn't have been a better guy for me because he liked to talk. He told me stories. He joked around with me. His coach was there. And I'll do this on our Facebook page. I'll put the picture of me and Howell and the two other guys we played with. Also super guys. But Howell early on kind of we gravitated toward each other because Keith told him I was a radio guy. I'm a stand-up comic. I'm this character. And and we were just fast friends. That's great. So I'll tell you. The very first tee, it's the 18th hole at the Scottish Open. There's all these people around, and Howell comes over, shakes hands with everyone. We're waiting to hit. He goes from the pro tees, and we go up above 40 yards, and we go from the amateur tees. The two guys hit before me, and I put my hands on the club, and I take almost like a three-quarter practice swing, and Howell says, Woo, I see we've got ourselves a proper swing. And I started, you want to talk about being nervous. I sort of looked at him, and I looked at him, and smiled. I said something like, "Uh, I don't know, we'll see. And I'm standing over the ball. And again, without I know oftentimes these stories, I'm the protagonist, but it's me. Of, of the five rounds of golf I played in Scotland, of all the shots I hit in Scotland, the best swing I made, swing thoughters, the best drive I hit was that one. I just, I call it, I long jude it. I, I hit it, Timmy, you know, and you know what it's like in Scotland. I hit it. My, my, my driver carry distance is about 265, 270 when I, when I really bomb it. So I bombed it, and I got the Scottish 25-yard roll. Nice. So given where our tees were, we took my ball. And after I hit it, I looked at him, and I said, do you want a game? And he laughed, and we were off. So oh, great. while he was talking to some other people, I Whenever I wasn't talking to him, I was talking to his caddy or I was talking to his mental coach. And his mental coach or swing coach goes around and and videotapes swings during the practice rounds. And that's how I got to know Jonathan. So, you know, one of the things I learned from him is that golfers sometimes try and make too much improvement too quickly. And, And we've talked about this. He said what he tells his players is, all you can hope for, a good goal to have, is to get 1% better Every day. 1%, just a little bit better at something every day. Maybe it's your process. You know, maybe Coach Tim is telling you to, you know, maybe could you make, could you be 1% better at your pre-shot routine? Mm -hmm. 
anything in your game is a one percent better is a, a, a worthwhile and achievable goal. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Like I was talking with a client this morning about how it's so hard to to make genuine improvement in this game. It's so easy to fall back, but if you just keep taking it like in a very incremental fashion, and like you know, even Jack Nicholas says, you know, I don't know how old Jack is now. Is he? I think he's in his mid seventies or something. Even with all the tournaments he's won, eighteen majors, how many wins? He still says after every game of golf he plays, he learns something. And I think that's all part of the same piece is just just getting you know one percent. Or something better. That, that's a that's a beautiful way to put it. And the other, well, the, the other beautiful thing. I, I when I when I sort of landed and I, you and I were corresponding or talking on the phone. I can't remember. I was so excited to tell you that, you know, one of the questions I asked him, and you can, you, you know, me. I asked a billion questions. I said, you know, why is it that I, you know, most golfers we. You know, I work on my game mechanically, and sometimes it interferes with what I'm doing on the golf course. And I told you this beautiful phrase. He said, "Build the boat." sail the boat. He said, you can't be sailing it and building it at the same time. It's fine to spend time building the boat, but you've got to just move to the part where you play the game. And, you know, you can, we, we all feel, I think we've all felt that where we're playing golf, but we're really still building our swing. The other thing he said, and this is super key to our swing thoughters, is if you want to be a good player, in his case, he'll say, if you want to be a champion, you have to embrace failure. And then take, as you said, Nicholas, and then take the learning experience from it. And he says, what separates champions from other people is that their reaction to perceived failure is different. They, they, like I said, you know, that little thing that happened to me last night, I go chip, then I chunk a chip, and then I make the putt because I perceived it as I, I didn't own it. I didn't go, oh, I'm a bad person, and I practice so much, and I still can't chip. I went, hey, that just happened. Now what do I do? Mm-hmm. So, you know, bring it back. It's that big boy golf. That's not immature golf. You know, an immature reaction is, a, well, 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 I did all this work. How come it's, I'm not, you know, I'm not getting what I deserve? Wow, really? That's like a six-year-old stamping his feet, you know? Um, whereas, whereas a mature mindset is what can I learn from this and it's always going forward it's always about the learning it's like you know Fred Shoemaker our our guardian angel or whatever you know it's your performance today is not based on your on your performance your performance tomorrow is based on your learning today exactly I mean I mean you know one of the things I I always say is they should have that thing at the first tee past performance is no guarantee of future results but now the corollary is past performance can be a learning tool for future results. Right, yeah. You know, so, I'm yeah, going to put... Always, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm just going to say that's so... It, it helps us also... It makes the game easier. Because if we're all... If it's always about the result, is, is today the day I break through? Is, is you know, it, it, is my handicap going to go lower all that um, that's just too you know, and it's identity, too much on your plate yeah and it's just too it makes you too emotionally volatile it's just too much of a golf becomes more of an emotional roller coaster and, and it's like anything else in, in life it's like what we make of it if, if, if we make this out to be important 
you know, that I shoot 89, 79 versus, you know, 90. If that's important, then we're just uh, this recipe for getting in your own way. Well, I, I think it's also, uh, by the way, total agreements. But I think what it does is it makes, well, I know I can tell you from personal experience, it made me feel fragile all the time. It made yeah. me, the, the fragility of my golf game is I would, if, you know, and, and it's funny because one of the guys that I played with last night said to me after, he said, you know, you don't smolder as, as much as you used to. And yeah, I laughed. Yeah. I'm like, that's a great way to put it, man. I was, oh, a, I was just smoldering all the time. But what that was was masking how fragile I felt. Yeah, and I used to sulk. Meets, well, hey, and, and you know, again, uh, you, I've only been playing golf with you really for a couple of years. And at your worst, I've never seen you even close to my every day. I mean, you're an angel. But I was telling you before the show, I, I've, I've had this realization recently. You know, even playing in the Pro-Am with David Howell, who, yeah, to be honest with you, I wanted to impress. And, you know, by not really caring, I did. You know, his swing coach, the first, I, I, I don't even want to say because it, it'll sound like bullshit, but his swing coach was very complimentary about my golf swing and my setup and, and my grip. Howell, when we got to be buddies about the sixth or seventh hole, he goes, do you want to tell you something and, you know, don't let this go to your head? I said, what is it, Dave? Because I was bugging him. I go, what is it, Dave? And he, he just, he just, here's a guy that was ranked ninth on planet Earth, and he was jealous of the way my right arm sat in my setup because he said his whole life he's fought with his right arm being a little bit too sort of like you know the elbow how it's sort of it should be sort of sitting relaxed. He said, yeah. you know, I've he said I just like the way your elbow sits. I said, can I get that in writing? Because you know, here's a guy that's playing on the European tour who sees a guy a schmuck like me, but had a sort of looked at the way I set up to the ball and said, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. And I thought, you know, this is crazy. Like, all this is happening, and it's bizarre to me. So that's kind of my takeaway from uh, from Scotland. And, um, yeah, like I said, I, I uh, you know, I had a couple of moments. I played uh, 18 holes by myself at a course next to Dundonald called Kilmarnock Barassi. Nice. Love the names, eh? Yeah, and I'm on about the fifth or sixth hole. I'm playing by myself. I'm not playing two balls. I'm playing golf. You know, marking my ball, trying to make putts, playing pretty nicely. And I hit a hit a nine iron to this par three, partially blind. I love that about Scottish golf. Like they have blind par threes. You yeah, know, you no, can't quite beautiful. see it because there's a gorse bush, and it was right on the. Right on the edge of the golf course, so it's on the western side of the coast, on the Clyde, the Firth of Clyde, which is, you know, sort of bleeds into the Irish Sea, and it was a beautiful day. That's the other thing. I had four or five days in Scotland of just perfect weather. Wow. I know. So there I am, and I have this, I can only describe it as my golf in the kingdom moment, because at one point as I'm pulling my trolley on this par three, it's 155 yards or whatever. I stop. I stop in the middle of the fairway or whatever it is on the way to the par three. I stop and I, I can just, I'm just listening and sort of hear the wind. And I listen, I can hear the, the, the sea. I can hear the water. You know, I thought, this is crazy. Like, what other thing could you do? I'm, I'm, I, I don't know bowlers, but I guarantee they're not having those moments. Like, it was emotional in a way, you know? Oh, I get it. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And yeah, I thought if, like, if Shiva Sirens doesn't come out now, he's never coming. <laughs> but I just had this sort of overwhelming appreciation for what I was going to be doing and what I was doing and the experience. And, like, it was crazy. Which is your way of saying it was a beautiful moment. It was absolutely a beautiful moment. Like, yeah, I know, and, and it was kind of took me by surprise, you know. It kind of uh, shocked me a little bit by how... I, could just, I, I don't know why I stopped. I just because I was, I guess because of the sounds I was hearing, I sort of paid attention for the first time that day to just the noise that the that the the golf course makes. You know, mm-hmm. that wow, that's cool. The noise the golf course makes, I love that. That they write that down, brother. Um, yeah, and so you know, what can you kind of take away from that? Is that you weren't all consumed with how you know you're. You know, how did your last shot finish, and what your, the score you were going to make? And and I think that that our game and our experience in life, and and ex, just experience the course, if we're in that kind of expanded space, of we can really notice things, and that you can have those beautiful moments in your game, and just in and and just in being aware of where you are. Well, I mean, part of it is the work we've done together, part of the work I've done with other people, and part of the idea that there's more to it than did I make par on the hole or didn't I? Yeah, because if that was golf, it would be it'd be very shallow. We tend to get distracted by that, but, man, it's way more than the numbers that go on the card. So here's what I'm going to do, Swing Guys. Uh, I'm going to put up a bunch of pictures on our Facebook page. I got pictures of me on the range. Uh, I got a lesson from Henrik Stenson's coach, Pete Cowan. Ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I got, uh, I got, you know, my access. I watched Fowler, Stenson, and McElroy play 10 holes. Not forget inside the ropes. I'm on the tee box. Like, literally, I told you the story. On one par five where, Fow- where McElroy, by the way, Fowler hits it amazing. Uh, Stenson, that three-wood is a beast. But little Rory, he's tiny, man. Rory McElroy hit it 40 yards by. I was uh, walking around with this guy, uh, Jeff Shackelford. Do you remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big-time oh, golf he, writer, he, Golf Channel oh, guy. He, oh, he's got a great blog. Yeah, and, you know, and he's a good guy, you know, very familiar with, you know, Rubenstein and the Canadian golf scene. And so he and I were walking together, and it was a, a tee box, and there was, there was kind of a long walkway to get to the fairway. And he and I kind of, you know, we all the players went, and we thought. But I guess McElroy had stayed behind to do something. And we're walking through this walkway, and a voice behind me says, Excuse me. And it's Rory <laughs> trying, to, trying to get around me to get to the fairway. That's how close I was. And then when we got All to right. the drives, Henson, uh, Stenson and uh, Fowler were about the same, about 295. And I said to Shackelford, I said, how far, how far is that? He goes, I don't know. Let's count it. So we walked it off. Rory McElroy hit it 40, 40 yards by those guys. Oh, my God. It was ridiculous. So I got a lot of those pictures. I'll put those up on uh, our Swing Thoughts Facebook page. Please like our page. That would be cool. Go to uh, Tim. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, and, and just go to uh, iTunes and if subscribe to our show, review, rate it. That will really help us. Um, and make sure you pick up a copy of The Feeling of Greatness. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's amazing. If you've read it like I have, read it again. There's a bunch of new stories. I think you said... Some 40-plus new um, Mo stories? Yep, yep, more than 40 stories, yep. And it, it really, a lot of Canadians, a lot of people listening have heard of Mo Norman, but Tim O'Connor had great access and writes it beautifully 
about the experience of who Mo was and, and what made Mo not just a great golfer, but a very interesting human being. Thanks for that. Yeah. How do you uh, get a hold? It's uh, what is it? O'ConnorGolf.ca. Is that still what you're working with? Right now, the the best, the quickest way to get it, and the, the least expensive way is through Amazon.ca. I think they've actually uh, this week they had it marked down from uh, you know twenty nine ninety five Canadian to twenty six, and uh, Amazon's got a good deal on shipping, so you can get it relatively relatively inexpensively. We're we're talking with chapters and. In Canada, Barnes and Noble in the states, about getting it in there and all kinds of things, you know, in the works that way. It's a bargain um, at twice the price. There you go. And folks, make sure you listen to uh, Humble and Fred on Sirius. They, they have the National Morning Show, and uh, I can't miss. Although you wouldn't want to listen with the, with your eight year old daughter or something. You know, it's so funny you say that because today, before the show started, Fred and I were like, "Hey, let's try and do the show without saying the f word." And forty five seconds in, he said it. Um, <laughs> Okay, so yeah, before thought, we finish, yeah, yeah, yeah. before yeah. we finish, uh, Howell told me a couple stories. One, he told me about playing with Tiger. Oh, about yes, uh, he told me about playing in the Ryder Cup. He said the most nervous I've ever been was in the Ryder Cup. I was playing alternate shot with Stenson, and I couldn't find the fairway with a for any. And, and that's a cool story. But I'm going to tell you a story. It took him a couple minutes. It's going to take me about 45 seconds. But I promise you, it's, if you can remember it, it's one of those stories that. You know, if you have a, a long wait in a par three, you might tell it. So it's a story about Jeff Ogilvie. And he, this is within the last 10 years, uh, within the time that cell phones have been, you know, popular. 15 years. Ogilvie's got some, you know, old, grizzled Scottish caddy whose nickname is Squirrel. And they go to this drivable par four, and Ogilvie wants to hit driver, and Squirrel goes, no, six iron. And Ogilvie's like, no, I, I want to hit the driver. He goes, no, six iron. And they go back and forth, and finally, you know, Ogilvy, like, I mean, this caddy's been around a long time, so he goes, okay, hits the six iron into a sand-filled divot, squirts out of the divot into the side of a sod wall, bing, bang, boom, on and five, two putts for triple seven. And, and Ogilvy is livid. They go to the next tee, and they've got to wait. It's a par three. And Ogilvy's just smoldering. And all of a sudden, a phone rings. A cell phone rings, and it's coming from Ogilvy's bag. Reaches in, and Ogilvy's phone is on silent. It's the caddy's bag. Now, the caddy's like, doesn't, you know, he thinks quickly, grabs the phone. It's his phone. Ogilvy's like, who the, you know, who the F is that? So the caddy not only grabs the phone, he answers it. He's like, yes, what's that, what, yeah, Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, Mm mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Ogilvy's looking at him like... What the hell? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'll tell him. Thank you. Ogilvy goes, who was that? He goes, it was me mom. She thought you should have hit driver too. (laughs) (laughs) As Howell said to me, I said, what? He said, yeah, the caddy knew that if he didn't make his player laugh, he was going to lose his job. (laughs) Very good. So there you go. That's our uh, show. That's for this week, uh, please wish me well. And the I call it the Duster Amateur next week, the Senior Amateur in uh, Toronto with Cedar Bray. Uh, and Timmy is also available if you want to get a consultation. It's uh, what's your uh, what's your email again? Uh, Tim at O'ConnorCoff.ca. All right, son. Uh, we'll uh, speak to you again. This program uh, brought to you by Clublink. Never been a better time to join. And of course, Taylor made the number one driver in golf. Alright.